0: It's Monday, October 11th, also known as Indigenous Peoples Day, if you are in L.A. County or Columbus Day, if you are elsewheres. Uh, We are here for our 195th episode of L.A. Podcast. I am Scott Frazier here with Matt Tinoco and Alyssa Walker. Hello to you both. How are you?
1: I'm very Good.
0: It's Alyssa, nice. are you are you uh, in your spooky mood? Spooky season? Yeah,
1: I've I'm I've kind of like skipped spooky season. You missed it.
0: I missed it's, it. It's it over it now. only it's happened now, it's from cr-
1: now. It's Christmas.
0: September twenty sixth to October first.
1: <laughs> Haven't you seen <laughs> the decor?
0: Yes. Uh, well, I heard Adele is back, and she is going to spook everybody out. And that's what social media is telling me about the fall. I I guess it's I guess it can be Christmas after that. I don't know,
2: Matt. How are you? Pretty fine. I I didn't. I don't. October. I don't know. I don't. My brother's birthday is on Halloween, so that's always kind of been the the chief there's always Halloween but it's also like we're going to do birthday gifts and cake and the whole thing mm. too which has always been the mediator of like that particular day for me um, but uh, I'm good nice to see you both nice to see you too I I mean
0: my only celebration of October so far I guess this is my LA story that I'm just launching into you unprompted uh, do it I started baking. I need to make a timeline. Are you I ready think ready for the season. I, I am ready. I, I need to make a timeline of all of the different hobbies I've picked up at various points in the pandemic because I feel like I've at this point gone through um, at least a dozen of different new hobbies new to me got really into fountain pens for a while (laughs) got really into uh, bird watching
1: bird watching was a good one
0: bird watching was a good one I'm I'm just trying I'm trying out new versions of myself I think the next one is I'm gonna learn how to make soup I'm gonna become a soup person these aren't
1: really hobbies for some people they're just you know things that you do to sustain yourself, I want daily. them to be a
0: hobby. I would, I would prefer for Soup it to be hobby. a hobby because then I can, you then know, you can stop doing it. I can it turn it after. off at some point. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm just doing it to sustain myself, then um, I don't know. Then what am I doing for entertainment? Anyway, I, I am baking, and <laughs> I you're just, asking the very deep questions <laughs> here. Uh, I'm, I made a, a really good batch of banana blondies. I'm, uh, I'm just picking up recipes, trying to do things that are both seasonal, but also, uh, I don't know, I guess I need to incorporate some more spookiness in there. Cozy, yes, that is the word I'm going for. There's like an aromatic sort of uh, element to it. I like that. I like that, especially since it's been hot and uh sorry wait it's been cold
1: yeah that wait, i mean that was going to be my la story october
0: was, and it's cold wait cold and rainy it was
1: hot october and now it's not it october yeah <laughs> go, i went back go. i went back to the store to get more halloween stuff and everything had been turned into christmas already so i feel like it's we blew it and then the weather changed so dramatically usually we had this like very long, hot October with the Santa Ana winds drifting in. And all of a sudden we had this amazing weather change uh, with some very nice rain and a 15 year lightning storm Mm -hmm. on Monday night, which, I mean, I was just sitting outside for hours. Yeah. I had never, I mean, I, I, I think I tweeted that like there's been a few storms like this. By the end of it, I was like, I have never seen anything like that, 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 that in 20 years that I've been here. And it was just like, they, it was just endless. Like this, the thunder was just minutes long and then it would be lightning and then you'd think it would end and then it would go through the whole thing again as storms do, but not in LA. I think yeah. people don't really realize like how rare this is. And they said we had a thousand strikes in like the region during the storm, which is very, very rare, which I was just, Very impressed that we all got to experience this together, but also on social media. It
2: was briefly hailing at my house. Really? There was a little bit of hail. Not for very long, but it was there. It was right between when it was very windy and when there was obviously just lots of lightning everywhere. was
1: everything. There was a downpour where at one moment I was like, whoa, this is it. And then it stopped. And then there was like silence. And then there was thunder.
2: Where did the where did the storm come from do either of you know uh, I know okay. it, yeah I would like to to contribute to this for for my LA story because oh, on that very on same it. day I decided to go for a midday hike and I couldn't really tell if it was hot or cold mm-hmm. because it was both and the reason <laughs> the reason for this particular weather phenomena was that we had both a weak Santa Ana offshore event so there's hot dry air coming off of the desert very fast at a low altitude And then we also had a very strong like onshore sea breeze flow, very moist tropical air coming on, helped in part because the ocean is warmer than it has usually been. So you had this mix of like, So to my story is like, as I'm hiking through Griffith Park, changing elevations, going up and down during the daytime, I was like midday, there's like points when it's baking hot when mm-hmm. it's like Santa Ana and it's really hot and like nice, it's just nice call back back to my story. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 425 degrees. Yes, go ahead. But uh uh 425, let's see. I think it was but it was still like 95. It was a very it was, it was like 93, 94. It was a hot day. But then also it was not a hot day and sometimes there was this like beautiful sea breeze coming in that feels almost more like it did this past weekend where it's just like cool and lovely. And then it's all both of those things at the same time, which is How we ended up with thunderstorms because I don't, this is where my weather knowledge ends. I don't, I cannot tell you exactly how we get like a lightning storm out of the mixing of two air masses, but I know.
1: Let me tell you something (laughs) about that. So. We should just
2: switch to meteorology (laughs) (laughs) full-time.
1: I mean, that would be my dream. (laughs) I I was looking up that exact thing. Like, is this warming of our climate actually going to contribute to more lightning? And yes, it is true because more water vapor can be held in the air when it's warmer. Mm. And that makes it more likely for it to have things like storms, like the unstable atmosphere that creates things like thunder and lightning. So- they estimate that lightning strikes increase by twelve percent for every degree Celsius that the you know, planet warms, so that means at our current rate if you know we're hoping to keep it hoping to keep it below three. We'll oh, see how that goes, uh, yeah. but that we're aiming for something like. Fifty percent more lightning strikes by the end of the century. So this place that we live in, that was marketed—I read this amazing DJ Waldie story that was published on KCT, like you know, ten years ago or something like that. Every they, DJ Waldie story, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, but they used to market LA as like a lightning-free place for Midwesterners to come here and you know um, escape the the storms of of uh, <laughs> the plains. And we won't be able to keep that title anymore, unfortunately.
2: We're gonna get a tornado warning for Wilshire Center. That'll be the day.
1: Oh, is that what that movie? Is? I know oh, that's
2: uh, okay. Over, oh, that's, over,
0: that's, under. I would say that happens before the end of the decade. I, tornado I
1: think, in Wilshire Center. Uh, a yeah. tor-
0: tornado warning at yeah, least. Tornado
1: warning. They had one on Catalina the other day, though, right? There was a tornado.
0: Was there? What? Yeah, there was. There was a. <laughs> oh, that's significant. <laughs> there
1: was a, a warning. I think there was funnel clouds.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I'm I'm logging this episode as the one I can turn back to when we get our first uh, tornado warning for Koreatown, and then, uh, and then I'll have a very sad "I told you so." I guess. Uh, let's get into uh, before. We're not I... doubting you, though. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, since I, I jumped right into uh, the LA stories, I forgot to mention we do have an upcoming. TMZ episode. Uh, it's going to be on the movie Spanglish starring Tao Leone and Adam Sandler. And I am looking forward to that. That will be coming out on the main feed on Wednesday, supported, of course, by our Sepulveda Pass holders. If you want to join the Sepulveda Pass, you can do so by going to patreon.com/slash la podcast. We're very grateful to everyone who's done so already. At the end of this episode, we are going to have an interview with Emily Elena Dugdale from KPCC slash LAist. That is about uh, the Antelope Valley School District and the policing of children on campuses there. It's a really good listen. I hope you stick around for that. Before we get to that, though, we do have some headlines we want to cover, beginning with what is happening off of the coast of Huntington Beach. I know, I know it is not actually in L.A. County, but it does have a particular relevance to Los Angeles because it seems as though, or at least based on most recent reporting, it is possible that uh, the anchor from an incoming ship to the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, which of course are dealing with their worst ever congestion as, and partially at least, a result of The coronavirus and related supply chain disruptions are now uh, thought at least to be related to potentially this pipeline uh, rupture and oil spill. Matt, what is happening off the coast?
2: Well, Well, here's your peg, is that the pipeline is attached to Los Angeles County. The pipeline goes from the offshore oil platforms, there's a pair of them, uh, that drill oil just off the coast of Southern California, but the pipeline goes over to the port of Long Beach, which is where, it, uh, the, LA County. There it is. Um, so <laughs> so the whole the whole thing is it's it's difficult to even understand what's happened. Nobody. It's like a lot like, of conflicting information. There's a lot of conflicting information.
1: Not even information. They aren't answering any questions. Too. A,
2: a lot of conflicting silences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like and like the
1: uncomfortable thing, silence.
2: The thing that happened on Friday is that the various authorities, which is like the state government, the federal government, um, a bunch of different regulatory agencies, as well as the private companies that maintain the the oil infrastructure that has, in some manner, leaked oil into the into the South Coast, um, but basically. Uh, at some about a week ago now, a little bit more than a week ago now, um, there was a an oil spill off the coast of Orange County, which I'm sure you obviously know about. Um, the The best version of events is that at 2 a.m. on the Saturday before the one that was two days ago, at about 2:30 in the morning on that day, the operators who it's a, comp- a subcontractor of a company called Amplify Energy got a low-pressure warning on one of their pipes, on this pipe that runs, uh, I think it was like 18 miles between Long Beach to the offshore rigs. Um, And then they got a warning that said that there was low pressure at about 2.30 in the morning. Then by 6 a.m., they shut it off. They shut off the pipeline. Don't know what was going on between 2.30 and 6. That is not a publicly knowable thing. Um, And then by about 9 or so, they saw oil in the water and called up the, I think it was the Coast Guard was the agency that they, the Amplify Energies and its contractors reported that, hey, we have an oil spill going on here. And in long story short, it seems like there were probably more than 100,000 gallons of oil that were leaked into the bay um, and that were coming ashore, not on, I mean, but also this is where it gets to conflicting information because there were a bunch of reports that you could smell oil in like, the one, some of the reporting, I think this was from Voice of OC again, shout out to voice of OC for being relevant on LA podcast the past couple days or past couple issues here. Um, but there was like, there were a bunch of 911 calls uh, in Newport beach on Friday evening saying it, what is the smell? It smells like oil, um, which could point to something happening. I think on Friday there was, there was some indication that maybe the damage on the pipe was actually maybe not an anchor strike. Like it's not like there is, it's unclear. Like I, I am like the anchor strike issue is interesting because Like you said, Scott, there are a bajillion ships parked just everywhere all over the place. It's it's actually the
0: second time during this. This is something that we haven't really covered in much detail on the podcast to date, but it's the second distinct time in uh, the course of this pandemic now, of course, going on for uh, over a year and a half in which the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, which jointly bring in 40% of consumer goods into the United States, have experienced record volumes of ships waiting to come into anchor or come come into port. They're anchored outside of the breakwaters. They're just waiting for the availability for uh, for cruise uh, stevedores to be able to unload their cargo, essentially. And that's that's what the the holdup is, and the the jam that exists right now is, as you said the largest that it's ever been. There are an incredible number of ships, ships offshore. We have exceeded the number that we set, I think at the beginning of 2021. it, by, wasn't, by far. it was far. Uh, it was not even a year ago that we experienced the previous record levels. So you do have all of these ships anchoring perhaps in places that they were, I would say, very likely never intended to anchor for any long duration of time. Uh, and the impacts of that could potentially be an oil spill like
2: we're seeing here. There was also the issue that uh, at some point a public authority of some sort uh, was like, well, maybe the pipeline wasn't actually exactly where we thought it was. Maybe the pipeline moves around on the undersea bottom. So even though we can instruct ships to anchor in one spot, well, maybe they were actually telling them to anchor in a spot where the pipeline was, where we thought it was. It's just like there's so many things like this that are going to be really, really, um, I guess we'll find out in years of litigation because this is going to be a pretty epic blame game, especially like when you when you tie together an oil company, their subcontractors, probably like the port harbor administrators, telling people to anchor wherever the uh, the actual ship, the the like the the cargo operators themselves, whoever whoever is responsible for actually anchoring a ship wherever, um, and then it's just it's like I think, and then it, it's all meanwhile, it's like we have this entire discussion about well, why are we doing offshore drilling anyway, and like I think that's kind of. I think it's it's a it's quite something that you you have an oil spill generated by possibly maybe if it if it was a ship you have a it, the, the like global economy is like creating an oil spill that affects orange cat I don't know it's just like like I think about at the port a lot of the time it's like you have a bunch of externalized costs of like Having forty percent of America's container traffic—that is an enormous amount. There is a, nor- a there's 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 a real health toll on Southern California because of that. And like, here's possibly another one. In any case, I I can't tell you what yeah. the oil is for, but like, I can tell me what it's for your cars. Yeah, it's it's that. Don't they I,
1: refine it here in gas? Is right.
2: Yes, I mean they do do that at Torrance at Torrance at least.
1: Could I be suggesting that? So you've got you've got this. they try to make the the port being zero emission, right? That's what they keep telling us. Like the port is cleaner than it's ever been, right? But then you've got pipelines flowing into and and being transported through the same area. Um, And then we have this backup of our supply chain, which is, you know, petroleum products that are being shipped from other parts of the world to here. And then you also have idling ships that haven't yet plugged into our electric port uh, that are creating bad air days and by you know weeks on end now we have this. So it's like, yeah, you can clean up. You can say that like the port is going to be zero emission by a certain date, but this, none of these other challenges are ever going to be addressed by that. You're still, it's still a fossil fuel industry that we are transporting here.
0: I mean, it's interesting to, to, I mean, it's been a very bad, I suppose you could say last several months for water quality in, Southern California. We also were talking about the Hyperion Reclamation Plant. Uh, that is the sewage sewage treatment plant, the oldest one and largest one o- operated by the city of Los Angeles out by El Segundo and Santa Monica Bay. Uh, unintentionally, di- well, intentionally diverted, but uh, it was an unintentional discharge of 17 million gallons of untreated sewage from, uh, from their head station. That's like even a far larger number than what we know as, of course, the um, the interactions with the environment between that sewage, uh, which is primarily underwater, and then the oil, which is primarily at the surface level, are quite different. But um, in terms of these types of disasters, like it's been a terrible year for that. Uh, wh- what do we know about n- as far as next steps or uh, it's uh, it, I reckon based on what you're saying, that we have a lot that is not currently known, and it might take lawsuits with this private company to actually get the answers out. But, um, but what is, uh, as far as next steps for the, uh, the relevant government agencies, what do we know is coming up?
2: Um, I think, not necessarily agencies, but I know that there's a number of elected officials and politicians, including the governor himself, um, coming out and saying we should, you know, move towards ending offshore oil drilling, which is, has been like a point of discussion since I believe the the most major oil spill in California history was off the coast of Santa Barbara. Right. Oh, yeah. And I think it was 1969. Mm-hmm. Much, much a significantly larger scale than what just happened in, in Orange County. Um, but like, even then there is the whole, I mean, it's the same, like the point is that it's the same discussion we're having now in 2021 that was had in, the early 1970s after the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill, which is like, why are we doing this still? Like, I know that, I mean, obviously it's because we, look, I put gas in my car yesterday. This is just how it is. Um, But like, uh, I think that's probably, like, I can't tell you how the regulatory process is going to work out. I am not familiar enough with how, like, I know how so many, like the Department of Interior has jurisdiction over like the pipeline's path and the, like, I know the Coast Guard is investigating the, Coastal the, Commission.
0: the the anchor. Uh, the fe- The Federal Coast Guard is investigating the 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 anchor lead as far as whether or not that might have been responsible for the cause. Um, and then I know that it it seems as though at least the the local governments are focused on how they are going to handle particularly like the the noxious fumes and and things like that. The Huntington Beach, the city of Huntington Beach, declared a state of emergency. Um, and it it does seem like it's just an incredibly complex situation in which um, they, as as you might imagine there's a lot of talk about solutions that are several years or or further in the future, and then there's talk about the immediate circumstances, but then um, the, there's also the need to figure out what the underlying cause was, particularly when we're when we're talking about a twelve hour potentially twelve hour period in which oil was just leaking and it was known about
2: and there was nothing done to stop it. And it was it. a
1: hot day and people were out at the beach. Right. I mean.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's,
1: Negligent because the
2: public really only found out about like the first time I realized this was I got an email like one of the the public agencies press release at like 10:30 on Saturday mm-hmm, night mm-hmm. which was a like apparently the Coast Guard tweeted about it at noon or so on Saturday but like there was a whole day of beach activities yep. um on while this was going on yep. and after while there was oil yep. in the water um I'd also I Gavin Newsom, our fine governor, uh, did declare a state of emergency to assist the response to the Southern California oil spill. And in it, he includes a date by which, uh, News, blah, 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 Governor Newsom has directed the California Air Resources Board to analyze pathways to phase out oil extraction by what year? Do you have any any sense of what year? Twenty fifty. 2035. It's between both of those.
1: 2045.
2: That's that one. That is that is when <laughs> that is when our governor. That's more than twenty years in the future. When the the remember that Gavin Newsom is partially a product of the Getty family, which yeah. is a um, a family that invested significantly in his early political career. And, and I believe great his rugs. <laughs> I believe yeah I know, but I believe his like a, his his private ventures too. I think because remember that Gavin Newsom is not only a politician and our governor, but he also owns many. Like vineyards, vineyards <laughs> and wineries, shack, whatever, whatever it is.
1: They just changed the name of that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a gross name. <laughs> anyway, we won't worry too much about his private interests today. <laughs> it is 20 years, it's a long time. More in than the 20, future. it's like 24 years out. Yeah. Yeah, to end oil extraction, which is, I believe, not um, how it should work.
0: By that time, we're going to have uh, in w- Wilshire Center, we're going to have a tornado warning every month. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's just, it's far too late.
1: As part of his plan to zero out emissions, he should change the name of his. A
0: fun Jack.
1: Be like Wind,
0: Wind,
1: <laughs> Wind Turbine.
0: We want Mine. to talk about the Sheriff's Department. We're going to be talking about them quite a lot today. As I mentioned, we do have an interview that touches on the use of Sheriff's resources on school campuses. Before we get to that, though, we also are going to talk about another story from KPCC, one in which uh, they're actually not unique in doing this, uh, but we have an increasingly common editorial usage that refers to the deputy gangs inside the sheriff's
2: department, a a decades-long problem. A well-documented, publicly documented thing that the county of Los Angeles has made a whole point to track for, again, decades. For decades,
0: and, and have paid tens of millions of dollars in settlements around uh, over the course of that same period of time that the the journalistic organs of the city are struggling to uh, to find it in themselves to call them deputy gangs. They are calling them uh, subgroups. They're calling them cliques. That's the, at least at, a time, at one time, was the favored option of Villanueva, the sheriff himself. Uh, they are calling them, what else do we got? Uh, we have groups. We have got affiliations at some point. Affiliations. Um, there are there there. And, and I guess now to to get to the point, the the one that is in print that we're talking about today is gangs in scare quotes. Uh, the the attribution being given to cr- critics of the department, um, which I think serves to further undermine and, and uh, actually really bolster a, a narrative, uh, under, undermines the criticism of the department and bolsters a narrative perpetrated by the sheriff, who is a political actor, of course, um, that any critique of the department is rooted in political advocacy. Uh, so we wanted to just sort of talk about, and actually in our newsletter this week, if you do subscribe to that. com slash subscribe. You should subscribe to that if you do not. Uh, In this week's issue of the newsletter, we talked a little bit more about this issue and particularly about what makes a gang a gang. Because to me, uh, you guys know, I was pretty much just uh, bouncing off the walls of our group chat this week because I I, I struggle mightily with, I understand the bind that journalists are put in by a sheriff who has... Uh, targeted them, made them the enemy, has um, implicitly or explicitly threatened them and supported members of his department who have done physical violence to them or their colleagues. Uh, That said, there's, I think, this sort of uh, futile questing for objectivity that is leading those same reporters to abandon what are objectively
2: gangs I mean if not okay so sure I mean, they can, can always say, be bullied into doing it by their editors that's also oh, oh, that's I, always mean, a and thing, I think, situation, that that's, I think yeah. that's actually it
0: and and actually that's I, that's a great point yeah. and I think it's more to the point is the the question that I've been having and repeatedly running into is what is the editorial conversation that is happening behind the scenes that results in you taking, the, the, the phrase deputy gangs and converting it into deputy quote unquote gangs as their critics call them, um, because it is, so, um, it is so diminishing of what is in fact a stellar body of research that has been put together oftentimes by these very same yeah. journalists. Uh, and it really just sort of uh, denigrates the quality of the work that they've done on behalf of a man, Sheriff Yanueva, and and uh, his employees, who frankly do not care what what the caliber of the reporting is, they will uh, they will denigrate it themselves. So, uh, sorry, well, I'm just I'm just I railing. I, I right think now. it's
1: it's the same. I mean, just speaking as someone who has had these conversations, not just related to this, but also when it comes to things like homelessness mm-hmm. and and how you describe um, certain actions that you know, I, I think are very clear in the mind of some of us in this room of what they are called, but um, trying to have a conversation with through the newsroom standards that you have. Th- these are institutions that have been around for, in my case, I work for like a 60-year-old print magazine. So like there's there's history there and these conversations are fluid, but the the inability to uh, the the word gang, as you prove very well in the story, and I hope everybody reads it in the newsletter, like the there there are actually like it, it, it has a definition and it has like a very clear definition that that you you kind of uh, go point by point through. But some of these other words are completely meaningless. Like if I had even tell somebody what a subgroup is, yeah, that's right. the specific. I mean, word. this is the one that just really blows my mind. It reminds me of how. Landlords are now calling themselves housing providers. And they have tried so hard to get people to use this term so you don't think of them as... Landlords. I mean, these are just made-up phrases, and we have to push back on them. as journalists, yeah, the we're not, not we're not going to let you do the real. the
0: invention of jaywalking
2: with deputy gangs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this with the word oil spill this week, which sounds very oh, we spilled. Some oil. <laughs> yeah,
1: crash an accident, right? Yeah, I mean, so, that's a, a crash yeah. and accident is a very good example if we talk about street safety again, but like. I mean, it's just like these words. You just have to push back because "subgroup" really means nothing. It, mean, like, it
0: means nothing, it's, it's and nothing. it's sort of like. And this is it, it is a thing that we see happen time and again when um, there there is a an impulse, not always a bad one, to attempt to be arbiting from above the fray. But there there also is a need to as The cliche goes, call a spade a spade. Like, you you know, you look at some of the reporting towards the end of uh, just that sucks to say, but towards the end of the Me Too movement, um, when things were just getting slapped with the app- appellation of um, sexual misconduct, and at a certain point, you're like, okay, you know, this is rape. You're talking about you're, you're talking about somebody who's uh, allegedly a rapist, they're not. Uh, a committer of sexual misconduct. That doesn't make you above the fray just because you can't use the term that defines the actions. And in the same way, I mean, yes, please read the newsletter. I will go through just a couple of them uh, here. I mean, we looked at the Department of Justice. The Sheriff's Department in Los Angeles has a fraught relationship with the Department of Justice historically due to the fact that they like violating civil rights and they like mistreating uh, historically speaking, inmates in LA County jails, and occasionally the federal government sees fit to um, to ask them not to do that. That being said, the U.S. Department of Justice, for example, would identify a gang as some uh, as a group that is organized upon racial, ethnic, or political lines. Of course, there is a lot of evidence at this point that multiple of these gangs. Uh, including the Banditos out of East L.A. Station and the Executioners out of Compton do not allow blacks or women to join. There are earlier iterations that were alleged to have only been open to white sheriff's deputies, including the Wayside Whiteys. Uh, There uh, there is, under the Department of Justice definition, the employment of common names, slogans, aliases. You've heard a couple of them already. Jump Out Boys, 2,000 Boys, 3,000 Boys are others. Uh, East LA station has slogans including Siempre una patada en los pantalones and low profile, both of which uh, reference the violent responses by deputies out of that station to the Chicano uh, moratorium protests in the 70s, um, as well as the racist moniker for the station, Fort Apache, with a symbol that they used, the jackboot, with riot helmet. Um, codes of conduct. We actually have. This is one that, as I was going through the list, uh, this was a new one to me. Thank you for showing. Uh, as I was going through the list, like so, things that gangs do, like the 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 initiations, which we know that uh, sheriff's deputy gangs do do. That this is something that is is uh, alleged by members of their own department that that they have experienced. Um, but also like things like codes of conduct where you're saying once you are bled into this group, you are going to abide by our rules forever, including to the exclusion of following the law, right? Um, And this is one of the ones where as I was going through the list and checking things off, I was like, surely, I'm sure that it exists, but surely it's not in the public eye. As a matter of fact, yes, it is. The jump out boys in in, uh, the LA Times 10 years ago were reported to have a code of conduct governing how their members were going to behave, what the initiation was going to be, general rules that they would follow. And Cerise Castle, contributor to this show as well as to Knock LA, actually found and published that on in her Knock series, a tradition of violence. And we will link. Or we do link to that in the uh, in the newsletter that we have.
2: There, which was also based off of stuff that was, uh, if I remember correctly, those were CPRA's for the County of Los Angeles. That's yeah. which is which is that is a that is a document the that's in their the, possession. The Code of Conduct was a was a document that was held by I I don't remember who she requested. I mean, it was a County Council, whoever it was. It was it was yeah, it was from County Council because it
0: was part. It was introduced as part of a litigation against the department for yeah. for violation of, of various civil rights. And lastly, I just want to say. Uh, under one of the the headers, they put no respect for law, no fear of jail. And I just want to call out former undersheriff Paul Tanaka under chief, or sorry, undersheriff Lee Baca. Paul Tanaka was, of course, as we know now, a tattooed member of the Linwood Vikings, called by a federal judge a white supremacist gang. Called by a federal judge a white supremacist gang in, like, 1991. Right. To. And so, like, just to establish, like, the, how uncontroversial this is. this is, this is something that has been discussed on these terms for a very long time. But to speak to no respect for the law, Paul Tanaka is currently behind bars because he violated the civil rights of an inmate who was also a federal informant in essentially trying to disappear that person off of the face of the map in order to subvert a federal investigation into the conduct of his office. These are gangs, is basically the only point that I want to make. There need no
2: be no scare quotes or anything about that. They're gangs. Another tidbit from that uh, period, the Libanka- tanaka period, was that distinct to disappearing uh, an FBI informant into the jail system, they also sent, like, there were deputies who went to the investigating FBI agent's house and tried to intimidate her. Yes. Like they Like, that was, which is, I don't, I, to, to the point of no fear of jail, I don't really, like, when you... When you go and and physically intimidate an FBI agent, that's pretty um
1: when I'm, you run the jail, how do you fear the jail?
2: And it, but and actually so that's well, literally yeah. it though that's that's the whole thing
0: and 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 yeah, I mean the, like there is if they're willing to do this to FBI agents, there's no doubt about what they're willing to do to members of the public. We talk about a lot more of it in this week's newsletter. Um, And we've been talking on group chat about like whether there is actually anything that can be done to dismantle these systems. I would say, first of all, certainly not if we can't as a society gather up the courage to call them what they are. Yeah, I
1: thought what Matt said was such a great point when we were talking earlier that the focus on like reforming the gangs really is kind of taking away from the bigger yep. conversation about, and and maybe that's on purpose, you know, maybe that they really like want to perpetuate this conversation that we're having.
0: Like a climate change denial sort of thing. <laughs> like you're you're having a conversation that's I've so. Those,
1: un- I've heard those euphemisms too. It's the oh, same Oh sure. Thing, like you're having right?
0: a, a yeah. of conversation that's deliberately. Of oil
1: companies s- will keep talking well, about that So the whole time. so
0: unproductive that you can't
2: actually address yeah. uh, root root issues. Because yeah. yeah, the entire the entire discussion right now with our current sheriff is just it's it's limited to. What we're effectively what we've been doing right here is is we're arbitrating the word gang or or not gang. And are we we're trying to decide whether or not uh that is or isn't the right word to ascribe to the behavior of to the conduct of whoever of of, of, certain of, deputies. of, of some yeah. deputies. Yeah, some deputies. And like and like that is obscuring um it doesn't like even, even distinct the um Distinct whether or not somebody is or isn't affiliated with a, a deputy gang or whatever, um, you still have it does like there's still just you're you're miss, it it misses the entire discussion of like police reform, which I think gets to the question of like how like what okay so the story the the story that had the the word subgroup in it was introducing a another candidate who's going to run against Alex Villanueva. And I think it's going to be really, really crucial over the next several months to not get, like, bogged down in, are, can we get the candidates to say gang or not gang? Because obviously— Like, remember what Alex Fanueva would do? He just said—he rolled in and said, well, I'm, not, I'm going to get the ice out of jails. Yeah. Great. Everybody votes for him. Whatever. Um, but, like, the, it's going to be much more significant to try and—to um, the extent you can get a bunch of people who—to uh, get a bunch of people who are, like, sworn officers of the law and, like, running to be county sheriff to try and actually like not get them to just acknowledge that gangs exist because whatever, obviously we, it's a material fact in courts of law that there are deputy gangs and that's not something that should be argued about, but you want to try and like pull apart is like, okay, well, what are you actually going to do about it? And like, to the extent that they are going to answer, because it is my suspicion that you're not going to get very good answers there anywhere. You really, really need to pull apart. Well, well, and then like building to a question of like, how would you actually get rid of gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department? Because like, I don't think you can. Nobody, nobody
0: has been able to. Not uh, so. The important distinction here is not that nobody has been able to get rid of gangs in fifty years, but that nobody has been able to muster up even an effort to do so. Because doing so is a very threatening. I mean, we're seeing now what's happening with something very minor, which is the ability for uh, for the civilian government to extract the commitment from the elected sheriff to actually enforce the vaccine mandate against his own employees and is completely resistant to that. Um, they, they, there is, I think, not a desire to spend political will on this on, on the part of politicians and also... Um, probably not a feeling that they could succeed. I do want to go back to something that you were just saying though, Matt, because I think it's an an important distinction that while I absolutely agree, it doesn't really matter what the candidates say as far as the Mm -hmm. existence of sheriff's Mm -hmm. gangs Mm -hmm. um, or what term they use. It doesn't matter what Sheriff Villanueva calls them. It matters a great deal from the perspective of journalists because it is sort of like the climate change thing Mm -hmm. where it's like in an effort to be As I said earlier, above the fray, you end up conceding what is essentially a semantic point that seems uh, like it seems like you can maybe just abstract away from it and maintain some sense of objectivity there. But actually, objectivity is saying the word is what it means, and and of course there are that doesn't change the underlying. Uh, problems with the word itself. It's sort of like um, it's sort of like talking about or having a meaningful discourse about terrorism right like it's an extremely politically loaded word. One of the sources I used and referenced for um, for what characteristics a, an urban gang has, Refers to them as the new urban tribes, and it's like, well, okay, and that was from the 1990s, so it's like, oh my god, this is terrible. Um, and yet, if the, we have structures that are built upon this understanding of what this word is and what it means, and so if we begin to just say, oh well, it n- not only does it not apply to deputies who are behaving in this exact same way as we would, um, as we would over police or rigorously uh, attempt to militate around if it were members of the public doing this, but to say actually it structurally cannot apply because if it does, then that is some sort of politically activist or otherwise subjective point calls into question the utility of that word for anything, which if you want to do that, fine, but Sheriff Vietanueva obviously does not. We have gangs in the sheriff's department that are policing gangs on the street. And as Sara Salaiman, the, the uh, writer for Streets Blog LA and friend of the show pointed out, our tactics for policing gangs here get exported elsewhere. And we are the future of policing in, in almost any case that you can think of from, from SWAT to militarization in general to, um, to anti-gang techniques. So it's, it's very important not to concede ground, especially for objective journalists, I would say, you know, as objective as you can be.
1: And I think the another just point about bringing it back to the climate change um, conversation, which really is completely relevant, especially when you say something like oil spill and the other things that we've been forced to um, repeat from these fossil fuel companies is it did take a few journalists coming forward and saying, you know what, we're not going to use these words anymore. We're not going to... Um, follow this line every time with saying some scientists say, some, some agree, you know, and really just declaring it as fact and just going from there. So we do have a really good model in how that conversation changed over the last 10 years. I, if you, if
0: you, if you can't call (laughs) sheriff's deputies gangs, you should not be able to call anybody else a gang either. That's all. That's all I want to say. That's all I want to say. If you can't, if you can't bring yourself to do it, then just, then just abstain across the board. Last headline before we get into our interview today, we want to talk about our mayor. Uh, <laughs> that guy. The guy that the guy that still is around and is definitely still in town and um oh well, wait He's
1: not really always in town.
0: Maybe he's not?
1: He's not in town that much.
0: Where is he these days?
1: He's been going to DC a few times.
0: He's talking to Zevyar Slavsky on the phone. Matt.
1: Oh, he was on the phone on that
0: one? They weren't
2: I don't think they were together. I think it was over Zoom or something. From
0: Air Force One.
2: <laughs> don't know. Yeah, that is to say, no, it is not. It is not <laughs> clear whether or not. What, please, please give us our update on on Mayor Garcetti. What is up with this man? I don't have much of an update other than to say that, uh, about again a week before you're listening to this, Eric Garcetti went on a UCLA Luskin School podcast called Then and Now, where he was interviewed for just about an hour by. None other than Mr. Zev Yaroslavsky, the erstwhile capsule capsule biography for Zev Yaroslavsky. Zev too. Yaroslavsky is a longtime fixture of Los Angeles politics, and he was a council member for a long time, and he was a supervisor for a long time, but he was never mayor. My my capsule biography includes such highlights as the reason why
0: subways cannot be built anymore, because he was so mad that the subway was going to East LA before it went to the Valley. Good job, Zev. And also uh, that the only reason why corridors in LA look the way that they do, where they are extremely low rise and can't have buildings or housing built on them. Thank you, Zev. And also, oh, sorry, I forgot this one. Burbank Airport has a very limited amount of traffic because... Of his former constituents in the San
2: Fernando Valley. Sorry, I, th- that's it. That's then all I and got.
1: Then and now. Then and now.
2: Then <laughs> the and now. And, the and then the now. And then the now. What's happening now? The now is that when Eric Garcetti went on Zev Yaroslavsky's podcast, although it's not Zev's podcast, Zev made it very clear that this was the first time he'd ever been on a podcast. And then Eric replied that, well, maybe it's a start of something new. Anyway, Eric Garcetti uh, spent an hour talking about uh, what it's like to go to ambassador school. That's what he was talking about. That's what Eric Garcetti's been up to. He said on this podcast that he expects to be confirmed within like three or four weeks, which would be probably in late October. Whether or not that's true or not, we'll see. Um, Remember, you are listening to this in
0: mid-October
2: so is it mid-October oh my god <laughs> so I mean it, it been, when did it when temper, did it, was temper it it your expectations we expectation. don't know it when was, he actually okay. said it I mean I would assume that was taped the last week of September okay that's my best he guess he was gone
1: for a week in September
2: he was gone for a right? full week sometime in September yeah where We didn't know where he was, and
1: many uh, and three other times too, where we didn't know where he was. But Lots we found out because of a Dakota Smith story in the LA Times recently. What
0: did we? What did we learn from his uh, buildings? Roman at at Ambassador School, he grew up. He's a real boy. He's a real boy. He. I mean, Harry, we, he's Harry Potter out from underneath the cupboard. We heard a little bit about.
1: Does that make Ted Cruz?
0: Uh, Ted? You say it. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not getting into it with these Harry Potter fans you say it
1: I don't know much about father, <laughs> but is he the worst he's, bad guy or is he he's, he's, he's a... Nagini
0: that's the snake right yeah who the snake the, was he, it he's the, the woman of color who was transformed into a snake <laughs> that was then beheaded by
2: a white man <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I've thought about any of this that's well maybe maybe that's an LA whatever. Uh, thing.
0: you know what we just say it and we let Dave Chappelle sh- sort it out later <laughs> that's fine
2: the, uh, yeah. Yeah. Ambassador Garcetti. school. What ambassador happened?
0: Ambassador
1: school. <laughs> what Where was it?
2: Ambassador school. At, at it was, White, at no, White it House? was just, it was just, it uh, in, it was in DC. Wing? It was just him talking about how, like, Eric Garcetti was very proud to the, the piece of information that he shared about ambassador school. He's like, yeah, there's like people, there's all, all sorts of different types of people who are going to be ambassadors. And, like, you know, we share little bits about our, like, expertise. And the, And the thing that he shared. Which I think goes to a lot of kind of what else he was talking about in this period of time with Zeb about his legacy and whatever, um, but like his legacy as mayor of L.A., um, which is I guess apparently something that Eric he thinks quite a bit about. Um, surprise, surprise. That is actually a um, surprise. <laughs> yeah, but um, he was the example that he cited for uh, Ambassador School was that he he helped everybody else learn how to deal with a combative press conference. And he was, he was very, he was like, well, I'm going to, I, you know, other people have different expertises on like, you know, what to do. But I, I, I I gave, he effectively kind of was telling how he gave like a media training to everybody else who was going to be an ambassador to the United States somewhere else in the world. And because he's got lots of good experience with combative press conferences.
1: As you yourself witnessed, I don't even think we talked about this on the show when you went to the opening of the new department.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's called chore. Like it's the department, her. the department of civil and human rights. I'm still and, and, equity. and plus, equity.
1: There's like i and also an and. But w- yeah, it doesn't have a snappy acronym, which is how you know that it's serious. It doesn't like have something. It's not like called Love, or, like La Love, or something like well, that. It, but it does have a heart in the logo.
2: The funny thing about this particular press conference, uh, which happened, I don't know, it was, it was the opening of mid
1: September. Yeah, and, and between trips to DC. Yeah,
2: he was here. And in he, fact, was here. he was here, he was in person, but then he wasn't. And that's, I think, kind of interesting to think about. I was like, how is this dude giving a training on like what to do in press conferences? Because his strategy at this press conference, effectively where people showed up and yelled at him at the opening of a new city department for civil rights and equity, um, what he just disappeared. He just ran away. He, he as soon as, every, like, I mean, the, without getting into the mechanics of this particular press conference, people, there were. The, it started, people started, There were, it was protesters shouting over it to the point that you can't actually hear anything that the speakers are saying. The speakers like City Attorney Mike Fear, I believe Mitchell Farrell spoke, Pre is the department head, um, and, and Eric Garcetti. And then and then every, they retreated back inside the building and then and then when everybody else comes back, Garcetti is nowhere to be seen. And I, of course, looking over at my left, can see a mayoral staffer What's happening with the mayor? Providing the mayor advice. Mm-hmm. To our advice is to just pull out.
0: And he, he's the
2: mayor.
1: And he he the, should have done the teaching. I feel the, like
0: the the mayor is basically saying, you know, you don't have to invite me to these things. You don't. I don't. <laughs> I, don't I don't. I don't
2: have to you be know, here.
1: I've got a seminar to be giving to DC <laughs> on.
2: How, <laughs> I mean, it's, how it's, to
1: gracefully exit your administration. What
2: I think about it, though, is as um, as you like hear him talk at length in this. Like, he only talks about his time at Ambassador School for like the first ten minutes or so, and 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 he, most of the rest of the time, he's talking about like how he governs, what he thinks about in his decision making, and who he personally is governing for. And and I want to play. I have two little clips of sound here. I will relate. I'll do the first one first because it talks about like his decision-making process and like what he tells his staff to think about. And I'm just going to
3: play it now. Don't worry about the criticism of today or the headlines of tomorrow. Think about yourself looking back 10 years from now. Did I make the right decision? And that's something I've really tried to teach my team is don't worry about the noise in the moment. It's always really loud. And the... The decisions you make that quiet people today may not be looked back on as very smart. And sometimes the ones that Mayor Bloomberg taught me this the ones that upset people the most right now are often the ones that, with a little distance of time 10 years later, are the smartest ones you can make.
0: Boo, you suck. <laughs> number,
1: are you one, me? number one lesson do not quote Mayor Michael Bloomberg in your Jesus. comment about 10 years later. <laughs>
0: And that's why I'm endorsing Mike Bloomberg
2: for
1: (laughs) For ambassador.
2: (laughs) He he used the phrase noise a couple of times Uh to refer to what I would interpret as, I guess, as one of those noise makers, particularly Mm -hmm. with that office, um, is when there's legitimate public criticism about what he's doing. And he's saying, well, Ignore it. Ignore it and get back to me in ten years, which is like nonsense because, like, you're a public official who's accountable to the people who are right here. And if you're governing for like how you like, there's also this like ele- this like paternalistic element to it. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I know better than all everybody else who is. How dare they criticize me? I know I'm mu- I'm better than you. I know better than you. Also, and- just to just to say like uh Garcetti gestures towards a sort of
0: like uh he he like thinks of himself as a technocrat right he thinks of himself yeah. as somebody who leads from a place of expertise and and so like from that lens it is paternalistic but it's almost a, a coherent ethos where he can say like okay yeah i uh i know what i'm doing people may not like it in the moment but look at where we're going to be 10 years from now His credibility on that point is significantly worse than Michael Bloomberg, a politician who has seen his reputation actually eviscerated over the 10 years since he left office. Um, But Garcetti hasn't done anything like he has no.
1: Won't like the um, won't the car rental facility be done in 10 years?
2: He mentioned that. (laughs) (laughs) He did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he mentioned, he mentioned the, uh, the airport.
1: Will the world's largest car rental facility be finished? And the, then at, we'll be able to really gauge. At the,
0: the opening of the Eric Garcetti <laughs> Presidential Library. <laughs>
1: Ambassador Library.
0: And outside the doors of Harvard Westlake, a crowd of people stands <laughs> chanting, Conrack,
2: Conrack. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Uh, <laughs> well, okay, okay, so let's let's get to the substantive point here about how he governs. And to do that, I want to play the second piece of sound, which, okay, so like, he's very proud of the Olympics, which is not in this in this piece of sound that I'm going to play, but he he emphasized it a number of times during this 55-minute conversation with former supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky. But then, like, this, so there's also this little bit that he where he's talking about what he what's on his mind.
3: I've always tried to be a kind of mayor and before that a council member who listens to the world because the world cares much more about L.A. than we realize. They know this city before they've ever visited here. And those who have come here or visited here or invested here or just have family here, they really see L.A. as a microcosm of the world and they want L.A. to succeed. And it's always helpful to see both our problems, but also our successes through their eyes. That's given me a lot of inspiration over the last eight years.
2: Which is, I don't he he said people who invest here, which is the one that I'm just like, my God, man, like, like my own criticism of how Eric Garcetti governs is that is exactly what he just said here is that he is governing not for anybody who lives here, Mm -hmm. but for people who are investing here and visiting here. And that, He's very That's proud. It. He's yeah. very proud Saying of the, the airport. Quiet part
1: out loud. It's very interesting hearing the, this conversation, like over the context of the news of, la- of the last few weeks. Because part of one of those trips, according to this story by Dakota Smith to DC, he was meeting with people like Ted Cruz, who are on this Senate committee that are supposed to be confirming him for this post. And there is no evidence that these hearings are going to be moving forward anytime soon due to various Republican initiatives <laughs> that are trying to stop it. But there's a very good chance that he will still be here in January when this yeah. trial begins, um, where this uh, you know, LAPD officer is accusing one of his top advisors, Rick Jacobs, of sexually harassing him for years in a way that the mayor was fully aware of and yeah. continued to let him advise him.
0: Uh, the, the interesting thing is the longer he stays here, the longer Garcetti stays as mayor, potentially the harder it becomes to confirm him. But it's not going to be easy for him to get out any sooner because uh, the even though the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the presidency, in the Senate in particular l- responsible for confirmation the Republicans have the ability to make this a long and drawn-out process, which two of them, uh, Senator Josh Haw- Hawley of Missouri and uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, have vowed to do in response to various Biden administration things. And Garcetti actually is one of, presumably, the more controversial picks at this moment, both because Republicans hate him. he's a um, He is probably viewed as a Top tier, next generation democratic contender, uh, regardless of what we may think of that locally, and uh, and at the same time, there are considerable question marks around what he knew about the treatment of people in his office by various other people in his office. So it's it's sort of the thing where he potentially gets moved to the back of the line if there's a contested confirmation because the Biden administration has this need to churn through a ton of other. Uh, appointees a ton of other nominations for appointees so Garcetti I mean far from being out of town in in the next two weeks time it seems very much more likely what you just said that that he could be here when the new year comes around and that would be problematic for him put him on the stand put him on the stand see what he says let's see let's see what he says Uh, We want to, without further ado, get into our interview. You are going to really enjoy this. I'm going to
2: let Matt handle the introductions. Matt, what's up? We've got a special guest with us today on LA Podcast, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to Emily Elena Dugdale, who works as KPCC and LAS criminal justice reporter, and who just wrapped up a deeply important piece of investigative journalism with ProPublica about racism and school policing in the Antelope Valley. Hi, Emily. Welcome to LA Podcast.
4: Hey, Matt. How are you?
2: Pretty fine. Happy to talk to you about this. This
4: is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Emily.
4: Welcome. Happy to be nominated for the show.
2: <laughs> it's a, it's a, I went back and looked at the like original episodes last night and I was like, wow, there were reporters on like every other week. And then I kind of stopped. And I know we're... for a
4: while. That's true. But, now we're back. You know, we like like to just stay in our homes and type, so. <laughs>
2: yeah, really. <laughs> um, so we want to get to the findings in your story, which you put out about uh, a little bit, or I think it's two weeks ago now from this from this air day. This is, or just a little bit,
4: mm-hmm. a little
2: bit less than two weeks after from the Monday that this is airing. But we're going to get to your finding in a second. But I was wondering if you could first help us understand a little bit. This is a piece of reporting that's about the Antelope Valley and specifically the city of Lancaster and I was wondering if you could help us learn maybe because not everybody listening necessarily knows that much about Lancaster. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Lancaster and what the community is like and who lives there.
4: Right. So ba- first, let's just talk about where the Antelope Valley is for folks who maybe have never even been there. So the Antelope Valley is like the northern edge of LA County. Um, it's about 60 miles away from Los Angeles. You have to basically cross a mountain range to get there. So it's pretty far out. Um, Lancaster is the one of two major cities there. There's Lancaster and Palmdale. Um, Lancaster until the 90s was a predominantly white town. Um, they basically had um, some like industry there. There was military and um, you know aero. I guess it's like kind of airplane industry, <laughs> aerospace. <laughs> aerospace. I'm like, what's that word? Aerospace industry. Um, and then going into the 90s, early 2000s, and where we are now, um, it became very much less white. So now the population in the Antelope Valley is predominantly non-white. And a lot of those people are coming from central LA, um, south central Los Angeles, um, other parts of um Los Angeles proper and moving up there because obviously it's very expensive to live in Los Angeles. Yeah. We all know that here. Um, people are finding that they can afford homes in Lancaster, they can afford large homes in Lancaster, they can have four bedroom homes in Lancaster. So you're seeing a Demographic shift there, um, and that's kind of what the community looks like now.
2: And so, okay, so you have a white community that has become less white, but also still has very much the same school. I mean, it's the I mean, you okay. So, why don't you just go in straight and tell us what your story is about, like.
4: Yes, so the Antelope Valley has one public high school district um, that serves basically the two, the largest kind of area in the Antelope Valley. There's one high school district. It's called the Antelope Valley Union High School District. We started looking at this um, high school district because of publicly available data from the Sheriff's Department about stops and citations and searches. Um, That data encompasses all stops and searches for Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. When we started drilling down into the numbers in the Antelope Valley, we saw that there were these clusters of contacts on school campuses. And I was like, okay, what is going on at these schools? Not all these kids are being stopped, they're also being arrested or cited for things like you know, minor drug charges. You see a lot of assault and battery charges for kids, really young kids, 13 year olds. Smoking, you said with some of them? They're I mean- smoking, right. So. You know, that immediately kind of, you know, in my head, I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And some of y'all might have had, you know, school resource officers, sheriffs, you know, sheriff deputies or police on your campuses at school. Um, So we were we found out that there's a contract, a one point eight million dollar contract with the school district to put one sheriff deputy on each of the eight traditional campuses. So they work there full time. What we found as part of this investigation, actually, and this is just like a little addition, um, there were some of the schools that did not have these full-time deputies had a much lower rates of contact. Actually, it was it only was a handful of contacts with students when you didn't have a full-time deputy on campus. So that was that's kind of like how we got into this work.
2: And then I guess just I mean. As you were talking to people who, I mean, you talked, I know that you talked to a lot of teachers and students and a lot of people who are just on these campuses every day. What were you hearing? What did people tell you?
4: Yeah, so we started out by, I started out by just reaching out to as many teachers and students as I could, which actually, you know, it was a real challenge for us to get people to go on the record for the story. Um, kids and teachers started telling us, you know, we see a lot of Black kids getting handcuffed, you know, after fights. We see a lot of kids getting treated roughly, Black children getting treated roughly on these campuses. We have a lot of teachers in our classrooms who are referring Black students in particular to sheriff's deputies or to security. Somehow, even if a teacher refers a Black student to a, you know, to a school security officer, a lot of the times that was going to law enforcement. And then that student was getting, um, you know, detained or cited. So there was a lot of concern about this. um, But there was also this like culture of fear at the school for speaking out. And that was something that teachers and students told us over and over again. Like, you know, we're worried about retaliation from this, from, you know, the district. We're really worried about that. And that was actually cited in an internal study done by the school district, this culture of fear. So it wasn't even like you were just hearing it. It was like someone came in and was like, this school district, uh, you know, people don't feel safe speaking their mind.
2: Um, what can you tell us about the, you mentioned earlier there was a bunch of data that was about police stops, uh, including on and near high school campuses. What did you actually find when you looked into it? Well, first, what? tell me a little bit about what the data is actually tracking and then tell me what you found in it.
4: Yes. So, and for the data stuff, we I really worked heavily with another reporter. That's Kate, uh, sorry, ProPublica's data reporter, Irina Wong. So I am not a data reporter um, by practice. So this was definitely like a little out of my comfort zone. So in California, all police um, and law enforcement agencies are required to report the stops that they make to the state attorney general. That's from a law in 2015 called the Racial Identity and Profiling Act. Now, not every police department has to submit that data at the same time. They're kind of rolling it out so that smaller departments who need more time to get up to snuff on like the technology have that time. But the Sheriff's Department has been reporting for now a few years. That data is all publicly available. It's sitting on the Sheriff's Department website, and you can also request it from the state AG. So we took that data, we mapped it across the city of Lancaster and we found, like I said, these clusters at these high schools. So what we found in that data was that black teens in Lancaster, um, they made up 60% of deputy contacts. They only make up 20% of Lancaster um, teens in the school district. So that was hugely disproportionate. And what we also found was that these teenagers on these campuses in Lancaster were getting contacted by deputies at rates that obviously were way disproportionate to the amount of black students in the schools. There was one school, Lancaster High School, it was four times as much as would be expected based on their population at that school. So,
2: like, like black kids are being stopped for, like, the rate at which.
4: the rate that black teenagers were being stopped on these campuses was four times the amount of black teens at that school, like their population. Um, and we saw, you know, at every school that we looked at, we saw those real, that really disproportionate number where white students and students who weren't black were getting stopped at rates that were actually much less than would be expected based on their population.
1: And this is something that, you know, we, we've we talked about this before with the L.A. Mm. school police. Is, it, mm-hmm. is that what it's called? I'll never get over that. L.A. Yeah.
4: Yes. LA, LA school police, school police. department. Police. Yeah.
1: Great. Um, <laughs> um, similar numbers, I think, right. like that. But how, so obviously they don't have an L.A. school police force that, you know, is at these school. How does the sheriff's department even get entered into the equation here? Is that just because they are responsible for policing overall in the city? Like, how are they introduced into the school in this way and not like a special force?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. So... The cities of Lancaster and Palmdale, they contract with the Sheriff's Department for overall law enforcement. And they've had that contract for a long time. Now, the school districts in that area, many of them also independently contract with the Sheriff's Department for law enforcement services. So I actually got a copy of the first contract in the Antelope Valley Union High School District. That contract was signed in 1990. So they've had a deputy on those campuses for longer than I've been alive. Um, so, wow. a long time. So that's kind of how the schools like it's it's different than in uh, Los Angeles where there's a, a separate police department. Um, this is just an extension of the sheriff's department. Got it.
2: I know a key okay, part of your your reporting was also documenting the sort of uh, I believe the the moniker is called "Cancel the Contract." If I have that right, but like, what is so so? Just to what you just said after, I mean. Last year and everything, there's as, as policing's like become a more, I guess as people are just talking about it more critically and thinking about it more, and and even like within schools, a lot of people don't even realize that there's so many police in schools. But we have a whole movement now to remove police from schools because of basically exactly what your story's about is that loading a bunch of kids up with a bunch of criminal citations is really a bad way to start them off into their adult life. Plus, it's traumatic and a whole bunch of other bad things. What can like what was the what. I guess your story tracked a bunch of efforts to do this in Lancaster. What can you share about that? And like who did you talk to about this? Is I like you you have some really I mean, there's important you talk to important people about this, and I'm curious to hear
4: Yeah. So more. first I would say that um, you know, you brought up that when these kids do these criminal citations, um, you know, it can lead to other things. I think what's important to understand is these citations are very, they're serious. I mean, these are charges that could be, you know, you could face jail time. You could face fines. If you're lucky, you could get community service or like a little probation, but they're serious. Um, and all the experts say that when you introduce kids into the system at an early age, it's very hard for them to get out of the system. So that—that that is kind of like the... It, that situation just gets compounded um, and worse over time a lot of the time. There was,
1: there was one person in your story, I think he was just a uh, in senior high school, and he didn't want to go back to high school because he knew that this was going to keep happening to him, and so... They end up dropping out and just going to work somewhere instead, because why would you want to return to that environment?
4: Yeah. So basically that story is um, so it was a 15 year old student. His name is Terrell. Um, He goes by TJ Pina. And so TJ, you know, was involved in a mutual fight on campus with a white student. Um, The white student called him the N word. Um, You know, they got in a fight. TJ got arrested. Um, he got slapped with a charge for felony assault. He spent two weeks in juvenile hall. You know, it was really heartbreaking. His mom didn't even know where he was that first night. If you're a parent, you can imagine that's you know very traumatizing. And then you're right. He he ended up basically becoming severely anxious. He told his mother that he didn't want to live anymore. At one point, the school district called them back several years after this happened and said, okay, your son can re-enroll. You know, he was expelled for this. You you know, we want him to play football. Um, And his mother said, no, I mean, he's going to be 18. You know, that means that if something else happens at the school, he's going to be an adult. He's going to be charged as an adult. You know, she said to me, he could go to jail. And he told me, you know, I just, you know, I want to become a firefighter because of the uniform. That's going to make me get respected. That's going to make me feel safe. So, you know, it, it doesn't stop with like the charge. It doesn't stop with just, you know, his was converted to a misdemeanor. So he received, you know, uh, dozens of hours of community service. That was it. But the ramifications of that are now you have a young man who doesn't even want to go to school anymore. He's so traumatized.
0: So from the interviews that you conducted, I mean, it sounds, it almost sounds like the impression that at least some of these kids are getting is that they are, when they're at school, they're just, there's just like someone waiting for them to make a mistake that then they can, and that they'll have one of these interactions. It's kind of just like a matter of time before that happens. Is that, is that accurate to what you experience in the interviews?
4: What I heard from students was basically that it was like walking on eggshells. And then a lot of them were basically trying really hard not to get in trouble. They felt very on edge, anxious, like things were pitted against them. Um, so we had a, a, a young uh, woman in the story, Shania Lemon. She's 18 and she recently graduated from this district. And she literally said like she felt um, didn't make her feel safe to be on campus with deputies, you know, she found a video, you know, she was walking through the courtyard at school. Um, She all of a sudden couldn't breathe, found a video later that showed that black kids who were fighting were being pepper sprayed on that campus. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, this isn't like, this is crazy. You know, Um, I'm just supposed to go to school and learn and leave. I shouldn't have to deal with this. So that's something I heard really over and over from students. you know, black students really felt like they had a target on their back. And the teachers who I spoke with um, on, you know, on the record and on background agreed that they felt like black students were really not given the same chances to, you know, have a second chance if, you know, something, you know, something went wrong at school that other students were.
0: It's, um, It's like a level of, obviously not attempting to put words in your mouth, but just as somebody listening to this, and not having the experience of gone to a, going to a school like this, what it sounds like with the amount of surveillance and the types of punishments that are being meted out, it sounds more like a prison yard than a school. And so there's sort of like, I can understand why there's a fear of being in that situation, especially if you have any alternative, even if it's one not, that's not good for you in the long run. I'm kind of curious, like, did the sheriff's department respond at all to to the reporting, to the interviews that you did, or do they attempt to justify their practices on campus?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. So the Sheriff's Department um, actually... Uh, has been involved in this story basically since I started asking questions about it. They did sit down with me and have an interview. The captain of the Lancaster station has talked to me extensively on the phone. Um, And what they kind of keep saying is that, look, like we're just responding to a problem that is already there. We're not creating this problem. Like black students are getting in trouble. It's our job to go in and enforce the law. Um, and one deputy said, said, and that's in the, this is in the story. And he said without, you know, if there's no law and order, um, you know, then society crumbles. Um, so that's kind of the line that the sheriff's department is coming in is, well. We didn't create this. The community needs to come in and fix this problem. We need to come together and fix this. But right now we're going to respond to the problem. Um, and that's kind of what we kept hearing from the sheriff's department. Now, of course, the community is saying this doesn't make sense because, we're looking at this data, and it's all these black kids getting slapped with these really um, kind of egregious uh, charges. So, how do you, you know, how do you, what do you make of that? So that's that's kind of like where the two sides are in this.
0: That's kind of it's like it's a it's a very extreme stance it seems like to take based on you know eight school locations that like the the balance of society. Sort of is is being weighed based on their their actions there, and I'm curious too. Like, did they did you ask them about the disparity between those locations where they are present forty hours a week or, or whatever the case is versus the ones where there are so many fewer interactions by not by virtue of, but but where there happen to be no sheriff's deputies present on campus full time is. I don't know. It's like is, is the is the supposition that there's just chaos going unpunished at the other campuses or I'm not sure.
4: That no, I think that's a good question. There's only so much I can answer with that question. I think what we looked at was we focused really specifically on these eight traditional high schools. Um and or um, we focused on the ones that were in Lancaster of these high schools. Um and what we heard from the sheriff's department was some of these schools were in, you know, and this is what the sheriff's department is saying, right, that they were in more like areas with higher crime. Now, we did not do an analysis of crime rate um, around the schools, So I, I, I don't have an answer on whether or not this, like, you know, we don't we don't know. We don't know about that. But that's what the sheriff came to us saying, like, well, this is why you're seeing numbers that are higher at. Antelope Valley High School versus Quartz Hill High School, which is in a more um, kind of affluent area. Um, Now, of course, on the other, like, you know, the people who live in these areas and people who are kind of plugged into this are saying, well, this isn't true. You know, Antelope Valley High School has a you know, a nearly thirty percent black population versus Quartz Hill, which has a much lower black population. Like you're here because there are more black kids. Like that. That's kind of what the the activists and the people involved are saying about this.
0: I I, I think that that de- I mean that definitely gets to the the question I was asking because it's their justification for this disparity in uh, in the numbers between one site to the next is they're saying that the the sheriff's department is responding befitting to whatever the the population or the circumstances are at at the the given high school where they are they're saying that that's that's just
2: a natural outcome of what's going on on the campus did the uh did the school district ever respond to like how how have they reacted to this
4: Um, So the school district has never responded to any of my calls, my emails, uh, showing up in person at the headquarters. They have never given me any response to this reporting, which is unfortunate. Um, I do know that they did see my email because they opened up a Google Drive link and someone requested access to it. So... (laughs) (laughs) But of course, that was it. There was no response.
0: <laughs> they didn't put a, in the request access. They didn't put off the record.
4: No, they didn't. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. Um, you know, I did get a reply after this uh, story. Air, or I got a message from one of the board members of the school district when I sent this person the article and they just replied back to me. Thank you, period. So, you know. That was, that's all.
2: (laughs) Have you, I mean, besides the school district and the sheriff's department, I mean, have you heard from like people, like kids and the students or kids, students and uh, teachers and other people about this? Like, what do they think?
4: Yeah. I mean, I've heard from students and teachers about this. They, you know, it feels, I mean, many of you know that when you put something out like this in the world, there's that feeling where you're like, oh man, like, okay, is this real? Like, am I just overreacting? You know, it's that kind of thing. But I was really gratified to see so many students retweeting it being like, this is how I felt when I went there. And then other people were DMing me, telling me about their experience with school discipline or sheriff deputies on campus. I had several students retweeting my um, tweet, which featured one of the, the stu- uh, sorry, the teachers, Baron Gardner. Um, and they were like, that's my teacher. Like, you know, this is amazing. So I got a lot of really good feedback, a lot of good feedback from the teachers. And this is, this is like an ongoing thing. Um, You know, they approved this contract um, again for this school year, despite I went to this board meeting, it was every single person who went to speak said, we don't feel safe with these deputies, please do not do this. They went ahead and approved the new contract. And then just a few weeks after that, there was a 16-year-old student her name is Michaela Robinson she was filmed being body slammed tackled to the ground and straddled by a school resource officer a sheriff's deputy um you know they recently this week just filed claims for damages um you know against the county and the school district for this incident it sparked protests um so this 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 is like the Antelope Valley is very much still a current issue with the deputies. Um, and I'm kind of sitting here wondering if this is going to move to to other places as well. The Sheriff's Department contracts with at least, um, at this point, at least 17 other school districts, districts in the county. So we'll kind of see what happens.
2: Thank you, Emily. Is there anything else you want to add?
4: No, um, I mean, just so you can find the story on LAS.com and you can also find me on Twitter at ee And that's it.
0: Thank you lots. That's our show for this week. This was episode 195. Thank you so much to our guest, Emily Elena Dugdale. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing, Matt Tinoco, our managing editor, all of our Patreon subscribers, and you, our listeners as well. We will be back next week with a new episode. Bye.